Well, good morning, guys, and welcome again to Alpine Church. I just want to say how grateful we are that you are here worshiping with us today. And, and I want to say again, if it happens to be your first time here, we're so thankful that you're with us. We hope that you feel welcome. We hope that we're able to help you pursue God today. Uh, my name's John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor up at our Alpine Logan campus, and I'm excited to dig into God's Word with you as we move into the second week of our sermon series called The Jesus Way. During this series, we're going to be camping out in Matthew chapter 5, and we're digging into one of, if not the most, famous sermons that Jesus ever gave, the Sermon on the Mount. It's his most well-known sermon. It's the one that's quoted the most. And as he often did, Jesus is blowing the minds of his original audience. He's teaching with authority. And he's taking some of the religious ideas of his time and he's turning them on their heads. And in this section of the sermon, Jesus is referencing some laws from the Old Testament. Laws that his listeners would have been familiar with. They would have grown up hearing them. They would have grown up trying to obey them. And he tells them basically these really just skim the surface. There's way more to it. And they're called the six antitheses of Jesus. We looked at this last week. So Jesus tells the crowd, the law says don't murder, but I say be reconciled. The law says don't commit adultery, I say be radically pure. The law says a man can divorce, but I say be selfless in marriage. The law says don't break vows, but I say be a truth teller. The law says an eye for an eye, but I say be a blessing. And then lastly, the law says hate your enemies, but I say be like me. This is what we're camping out in here for the next five weeks as we continue on in this series. Now, does this mean that the law was bad? Does this mean that it didn't have a purpose or value? Not at all. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, verse 17, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus came to do something that nobody else could do. He came to fulfill the law. And he didn't just obey the surfacey things. He obeyed the law to its fullest intent. He went deeper. He fulfilled it perfectly. And so in this way, we see that the law actually points to the way of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we looked at the first antithesis where Jesus says, don't murder, but I say be reconciled. I've had multiple conversations with people this last week who were moved by the Holy Spirit last week to seek reconciliation with someone. I love that. I love that we're not just hearers of the word, but that we're being doers also. So I just want to encourage you, if God put that on your heart last week, but you haven't taken that next step, don't just have good intentions about reconciliation. Take that next step and reach out to that person that God put on your heart. This week we're going to take a look at the second Jesus way. 
We're going to see that Jesus calls us to go far beyond the act of not committing adultery, but instead to pursue radical purity. I don't know if there's ever been a more important time to have this conversation. I don't know if Pastor Eric thought I was going to bring visual aids or something, so it's not going to be as bad as he made it sound. But we live in a culture that is more and more hostile to God's call for sexual purity. In fact, we live in a culture that celebrates lust. They champion and idolize people who live for their own selfish desires. Anyone, men, women, teens, even preteens can fall into this sin. Non-believers, believers, key leaders in ministry have all fallen. We look in the Bible and we see a man like David who is called a man after God's own heart. And he had a brutal failure in this area. And then we see his son Solomon who was the wisest man on the planet at the time. And later in his life, lust for foreign wives pulled him away from God. And the crashes have kept coming through the centuries right up until recently with leaders like Ravi Zacharias. So this is a critical topic. So let's see what Jesus has to say in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Jesus says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, many of us are familiar with this passage, so I think that maybe it loses a little bit of its shock value on us. But I want you to picture for yourself what it would have been like to be in that original audience that Jesus speaks this to. He starts out, he says, you have heard the commandment that says, do not commit adultery. Notice he didn't say you have read the commandment. See, most of Jesus' audience in the Sermon on the Mount were common people. They didn't have access to the written word in their home like you and I are blessed with today. So most of what they knew about these commandments were things they had heard in the synagogues, from the teachers of the law, from the Pharisees, from rabbis. And I'm sure as Jesus started with that first part of his saying, they all would have said, oh yeah, I've heard that commandment. And I bet most of them were probably thinking, and I've never broken it. I've never committed the physical act of adultery. And then Jesus drops this bomb in their lap. And I'll bet the people who were farther away as they heard that were tapping the people in front of them on the shoulder who were closer to Jesus and going, did he say what I just think he said? Did he just say that anyone who even looks lustfully at a woman has committed adultery in his heart? That's impossible. Everyone has looked lustfully at someone. And that brings us to our first point in today's message, that adultery is just the tip of the iceberg for lust, and it's all rooted in seeing people as objects. See, adultery is a, a horrible sin that breaks a covenant between a man and a woman that was made before God. But adultery is not where sin starts. Adultery is where sin culminates. It's where it ends. It's the tip of the iceberg. 
There was so much that happens leading up to actual adultery that is sinful. And often it starts because we begin to look at others as objects. And so young men in particular, I want to challenge you to not look at young women as objects. I want to challenge you to look at young ladies as daughters of a perfect and holy God. A God that one day you're going to have to stand before and give an account as to how you treated his daughters. Don't look at them as objects. And young, young ladies, I would encourage you the same thing in the way that you look at young men. See, because Jesus is going to get the, beneath the surface here. We looked at this image last week when we talked about anger. That adultery is just the tip of the iceberg and Jesus is going to dig deeper. He's teaching that lust is deadly. We already know that adultery is deadly. We know that it, it gives us emotional death, relational death, spiritual death. But Jesus says there's also death in what lies beneath. And just like with a real iceberg, it's usually the part under the surface that sinks a ship. So many marriages have been sunken by what lies beneath the surface before the actual act of adultery has ever been committed. And Jesus going beneath the surface to the heart of this issue would have been radical for his original audience. They didn't even really look at the command not to commit adultery the same way that we do. For them, it wasn't so much a function of purity as it was respect for another man's property. See, remember, in Jesus' culture, women had very few rights and were almost viewed as property of their husband. So here, here's a look at one commentator's thoughts on how the culture looked at the commandment regarding adultery in Jesus' time. The Old Testament command not to commit adultery is often treated in Jewish sources not so much as a function of purity as of theft. It was to steal another man's wife. Jesus insisted that the seventh commandment points in another direction, toward purity that refuses even to lust after any woman. So there was way more to the law than they recognized. Even when they were obeying the law, they weren't really obeying the law. And maybe you find yourself in a similar spot today. Maybe you've never committed the physical act of adultery, but God's beginning to soften your heart in regards to lust. And you recognize it's an issue in your life. It's something that you struggle with. And so I want to get practical. I want to talk about how to recognize the, the pattern of sexual sin and then how to be free from it. So that brings us to our next point, and that's that sin follows a predictable pattern. Sexual sin follows a predictable pattern. I mean, think about it. You don't hear about a faithfully committed husband or wife leaving the house one morning and then committing adultery over the lunch hour without many, many things leading up to that. Now, I know Hollywood would like us to believe that happens all the time, but it's just not the way it happens in the real world. So we're going to talk about this pattern that sexual sin typically follows. And we're going to see that there are three stages to sexual sin. And the first one is that it starts with our eyes. Sexual sin starts with our eyes. Did you know the porn industry is a $98 billion a year industry? And before we kid ourselves and tell ourselves that most of that money comes from non-believers, 
I'm going to give you some statistics. They're going to hit a lot closer to home. These come from Barna's study called the Porn Phenomenon, and here's what they say. 41% of males age 13 to 24 who identify as practicing Christians, not nominal Christians, these are people who attend church regularly, who say they're reading their Bible. 41% of males age 13 to 24 view porn regularly. 23% of males age 25 and older who identify as practicing Christians view porn regularly. 13% of females age 13 to 24 who identify as practicing Christians view porn regularly. And 5% of females age 25 and older who identify as Christians view porn regularly. So ladies, you're doing a much better job than the men are, but I will say the fastest growing segment of people viewing porn are women. Now the definition they used of regularly viewing porn is that they're actively looking to seek it out at least once or twice a month. So this isn't where you just happen to be scrolling through your feed and something accidentally pops up or, or where you're looking at Instagram and your eyes linger on that one picture for a couple of extra seconds. This is actively seeking out porn to view it. Our eyes are so important. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, and 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And we see warnings all the way back in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 4, 25 and 27. Look straight ahead, again, the idea of our eyes, and fix your eyes on what lies before you. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on the safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. Again, look straight ahead. Fix your eyes. See, if you were to continue reading chapter 4 and then into chapter 5 of Proverbs, you'll see that most of this is about keeping his son away from the adulterous woman. It's in the context of sexual purity. And the challenge to control what we look at is important because sexual sin starts with the eyes. And it's not enough to just remove the things that we shouldn't look at we want to get in the habit of replacing that with things that we should look at. Here's that encouragement in Numbers 15, 37 through 39. So think about the idea of what this means to look at. Throughout the generations to come, you must make tassels for the hems of your clothing and attach them with a blue cord. That way, when you see the tassels, you will remember and obey all the commands of the Lord. Instead of following your own desires and defiling yourselves as you are prone to do. This isn't about legalism and how we dress. I'm not encouraging you guys to go home and make tassels for your shirts or your pants. Pastor Eric's young enough, he might be able to pull that off. I would just look pretty dorky if I did that. So. But it's about replacing the bad habit of looking at things that lead to death with looking at things that lead to life. It's about looking at the commands of God. It's about looking to the God whose boundaries are for our good. He wants what is best for you. He knows what is best for you. I don't know why we forget that so often in this area of sexual sin. For some reason in this area, we feel like God's holding out on us. Like, like we're unfortunate because we don't get to experience what the world experiences in this area. 
Do you know what God is keeping you from experiencing if you honor him in this area? Shame, bitterness, brokenness, insecurity, bondage, fear, damaged relationships. That's what God is trying to keep you from experiencing if you'll honor him in this area. God's not holding out on you. God's got something better for you. God knows what is best for you. I want to look at one more verse dealing with the eyes. Job 31.1, Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. Now, if Job recognized the importance of his eyes in his culture, how much more so should we recognize it in the hyper-sexualized culture that you and I live in? It really is crazy to me that they use sex and lust to sell just about everything. I remember when my boys were eight and six, one of our favorite things to do every week is we would take one morning and we'd go to Carl's Jr. and we'd have sausage, egg, and cheese biscuits together. And we would just talk. It was like the highlight of our week. And then we were watching a football game one night on TV and a Carl's Jr. commercial came on for their double chili cheeseburger. Maybe you remember some of those commercials. This model is eating it in a library and she's got a skirt that's super short. Her dress or her shirt is unbuttoned about halfway down. And she's pounding it in this big double chili cheeseburger. She's dripping it all down herself and she's moaning and she's groaning as she ate it. And I was ticked. I was more than ticked, but I'll let it my language since we're in the house of the Lord. I'll be honest with you, there's a time in my life I probably would have enjoyed that commercial. But with my boys there, God convicted me of how evil that was. And I remember turning the channel and I was like, are you serious? They're using sex to sell a cheeseburger. A cheeseburger, guys. It wasn't a cologne commercial. It wasn't a condom commercial. It was a cheeseburger. I thought it was absolutely ridiculous. So we quit going to Carl's Jr. For four years, we didn't step foot in one of the restaurants. We didn't go through the drive-thru. We didn't buy their sausage, egg, and cheese biscuits until they pulled those ads. And my kids didn't even get it. My six-year-old didn't even know what lust was. (laughs) But we had a lot of conversations about how important it is what we look at. Because if we leave our eyes unchecked, it moves to the second step, which is our heart. If we leave our eyes unchecked, guys, it's gonna get into our heart. Now, we're not talking about the organ in your body that pumps the blood. We're talking about our innermost being, our thoughts, our wills. Here's some more commentary on how Jesus' original audience would have understood the heart. It says, the heart is the center of a person's life and made to note their thought emotions, and will. And Jesus is saying that the person who lusts has committed adultery in the very center of his being. See, when it moves from our eyes to our heart, we start to attach emotions to it. We start to play out the what-ifs and the possibilities. We start to tell ourselves that we deserve to fulfill the desires of our heart. That usually doesn't happen on just the first look. I think for most of us guys and gals, the first look at an attractive person doesn't cause our mind to go there. 
but it doesn't usually take long. I remember my junior high and senior high Sunday school teacher always used to say, the first look is usually pretty innocent, but the second look's probably going to lead you somewhere that you don't want to go. It gets into our hearts so quickly. Here's another warning from Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else. If our heart is really the center of our will, of our thoughts, of our desires, of our intentions, it's easy to see how that's going to direct the course of our lives. So when you notice those lustful feelings getting inside, when they go from your eyes to your heart, man, get rid of them. Cast them out. Ask God to take them from you. They're going to happen from time to time. It's just part of our fallen nature. But ask God to take them out. Because if you let them take root in your heart, there's a good chance it's going to lead to the third stage, which is action. Here's how James talks about that in James chapter 1. He says, These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. When the desires of our heart go unchecked, it leads to action. And those actions are going to lead to death. You know, I've had numerous conversations over the years with couples whose marriages have been wrecked by infidelity. And one of the common things you hear in those conversations is, I just don't know how it ever went this far. Well, James tells us how it went that far. Sin wasn't taken seriously early on and was allowed to take root and it led to action. All of a sudden you have people who are doing things that early on in their marriage never in a million years would have imagined they'd ever go that far. We have to treat it seriously. So now that we've talked about the progression of it, what do we do about it? How can we be free from it? Well, Jesus taught us to radically eliminate the threat. I love that Jesus gives us insight on how to have victory in this. He didn't just drop this horrible news in their lap and say, well, that's, it just is what it is. You're stuck. No. He told his audience how to have victory in this area. Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Jesus says, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust... Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now I notice as I go to church every Sunday at different Alpine campuses, we don't have a lot of people who are missing eyes or missing hands. <laughs> So is Jesus being literal here? Because I know we have people who struggle with lust. No, he's, he's not being literal. He's using hyperbole, but he's trying to drive home the point how serious this is. That you need to be willing to go to extreme lengths to eliminate the threat because it's a matter of life and death. See, it really boils down to you deciding if you really want to have victory in this area. If you're really willing to do whatever it takes to eliminate the threats in your life. Now that doesn't mean cutting out your eye or cutting off your hand, but what does it mean cutting out? For some of you, it may mean cutting out the apps that you have on your phone. 
I don't have TikTok or Instagram because that's temptation I just don't need to deal with. I don't need those. Maybe it's changing what you watch on TV, even if your spouse is watching it with you. And if you want to push back on that and say, well, man, I really enjoy that show, I just remind you, Jesus would say, cut out your eye or cut off your hand. Maybe for some of you, it's not going to the gym. I know for me, I had to give up my gym membership. Because I know for me, it never failed. If I was on an elliptical or on a treadmill, it wasn't long. One of the most attractive ladies in the gym would be on the elliptical right in front of me or the treadmill. And I would move, but I would catch myself, catch my eyes drifting. Now, that's not her fault. That's mine. Just so we're clear, I'm not blaming anybody but me. You might say, well, I want to take care of my body. It's the temple of God. God calls to take care of it. I think Jesus would say... It's better to enter the kingdom of heaven 10 pounds overweight than have your whole shredded body thrown into hell. I'm not saying the gym is bad for everyone. If you're not tempted there, if you have victory there, God bless you, that's fantastic. But if it's a struggle, cut it out. It could be the type of music that you listen to. And the lyrics of secular music are so hypersexualized. I don't know what it is for you. I know some of the triggers that I had, but whatever they are, be honest about it and cut it out. You know, we hear this term battling pornography in a lot of Christian circles. I think most of the people who use that term aren't battling at all. They're playing with it. They're treating it like a game. Because if you're really in a battle, you do whatever it takes to win because your life is on the line. You're alert, you're aware of your surroundings. Right? You know where the danger zones are. You bring in other people. You recruit other warriors to help you. You put up good defenses. You're well-trained in the weapons of war if it's a battle. Does that sound like the way you're battling this issue? Or are you really just playing with it? Are you aware of the triggers that cause you to stumble? Do you know when you're most vulnerable? Have you brought other Christian brothers or sisters in and recruited them to help you fight this thing? Do you know how to use your weapons? Do you know how to use God's word to speak against the lives of the enemy? See, if you're struggling with lust and you're not doing those things, don't expect to have victory. And I'm not trying to come across as someone holier than thou. I'm speaking as a broken guy who's had my own failures in this area. I sat in a sermon much like this one about 13 years ago and I was challenged and I basically just followed it in the back of my mind. I wasn't in vocational ministry at the time, but I was very active in my church. I was serving in several leadership positions. In fact, I had multiple people asking me if they could submit my name to be on the elder board of our church. And I told them, no, I'm not qualified. But I didn't have the courage to tell them why I wasn't qualified. See, I looked apart on the outside, but inside I was dealing with lust. I, I would have told you I was battling it, but I was just playing with it. It started innocently enough. I was reading a Sports Illustrated article about Florida State's upcoming football season. I grew up in Florida. I'm a diehard Knowles fan, even though they've been horrible now for 10 years. And there was a link in that article to the Florida State cheerleader page, and I clicked it. And all of a sudden, dozens of other cheerleader pages are popping up. They were fully clothed, but I was definitely looking lustfully at them, and that escalated. And next thing you know, 
I'm looking at full-blown pornography once to twice a week. The season lasted about five months until my wife caught me. And it killed her. It broke her heart. She cried so hard, she literally threw up. And I did that to her. My selfishness, my weakness did that to her. I couldn't blame anybody else. I'm so thankful she had the courage to confront me. I'm so thankful she had the courage to forgive me. So I started battling. I cut things out of my life. I brought men into my life who would hold me accountable. I got rid of triggers and God gave me victory. God's given me victory for 12, 13 years now and God can give you victory but only if you treat it like a battle. You gotta be willing to do whatever it takes. Now as with most sin, that's not just us trying harder in our own power. So when I talk about this trifecta for Christian living, first it's God's spirit. See, we've gotta ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to do the things that please God. We've gotta ask the Holy Spirit to work with us. We've gotta stay connected to the vine. Jesus said, if you stay connected to me, you will bear fruit. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It doesn't say you might bear fruit or you'll have the opportunity to bear fruit. He says, if you stay connected to me, you will bear fruit. What's one of the fruits of the Spirit? Self-control. You want to have victory in this area? You need self-control. It's also about God's Word. It's about putting God's Word into your heart. It's about replacing those things you're not going to look at with God's Word, with things that lead to life. We know that God's word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. And then lastly, it's about God's people. Get a handful of Christians, same sex as you, who can help you battle this, who can encourage you, who can pray for you, who can help hold you accountable. You need that. Maybe you've tried that already and it's just not going anywhere. I would ask you to consider the recovery group that they have here. So on Friday nights at 6.30, where you can get people who've been through probably the same thing you're going through who can rally around you. I want to wrap up with one last passage, Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. You see the same pattern of eyes and heart here in this verse? It says, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Think about the things of heaven. In some translations, it says, set your heart on the things of heaven. Eyes, heart, and the actions will follow. I know this has been a pretty heavy sermon for some of you because I sat where you're sitting 13 years ago. So I want to close by reminding you that God's grace and forgiveness are bigger than any failure you've had in this area. When God nailed your sins to the cross, he nailed all of them to the cross, including sexual sin. I can honestly stand up here and tell you that God has fully redeemed my marriage. My wife and I are closer than we've ever been. We're healthier than we've ever been. Even our our intimacy is healthier than it's ever been. I think she would say that as well. That didn't happen overnight. It took time. I had to rebuild a lot of trust. 
So if you failed in this area, I want to remind you that trust is earned. You can't demand your spouse just trust you again. You've got to go about earning it. Or maybe you're here today and you're the spouse who's been betrayed and you just don't know how God will ever put the pieces back together again. I just want to remind you that God specializes in that. God can redeem your situation. We have a God who loves to make beauty out of ashes. And I know he wants to do that for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your forgiveness, which knows no limits. Jesus, I thank you for going to the cross and taking our sins, even our sexual sin, and nailing it there when we put our trust in you. God, I want to lift up two groups of people now. I want to lift up first off the the individual who maybe is stuck in sexual sin right now. God, I pray that you'd help them to see that it, it really is a matter of life and death, that it'll just bring death and destruction. And I pray that they'd battle it. I pray that they wouldn't treat it like a game anymore, God, but that they would do whatever it takes to eliminate the threat. God, I pray for those who have been betrayed by a spouse or by a loved one. God, I pray for healing, for restoration, for redeeming. We thank you that you are a God who redeems. Oh God, for all of us, men, women, young, old, would you help us to pursue radical purity? And would we know that it's not because you're holding out on us, but it's because you have something better for us. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.